When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Anastasia Lang, founder and CEO of CreativeX. We make a lot of promises and have a lot of efforts to try and do things like be responsible citizens as brands to promote, you know, different people of all different colors and orientations. And yet when we look at the content we put out, we don't always tell that story. And I think part of it is because it has become very, very difficult to analyze content at that scale in an objective way. We can help to even get an initial pulse check as to how you're doing on things that don't even relate to marketing performance. What is the message you're really sending, I think, is the broader question. And how do we help you figure out whether or not the messages that you're really sending actually are in line with the brand values and the things that you would like to be sending? This is Anastasia. Early in her career, she gained experience in brand strategy at Interbrand, spent five years at Google, where she worked on every ad tech and analytics product, led entrepreneurship efforts in EMEA, and was responsible for early stage partnerships for Google Voice, Chrome, and Wallet. In 2012, she co-founded Hatch, one of Time Magazine's top 10 startups to watch in New York and one of the four most innovative retail companies. Today, she is the founder and CEO of CreativeX, an automated creative excellence platform used by the world's most loved brands. The company is on a mission to advance creative expression through the clarity of data. And that inspired me. And hence, I invited Anastasia to my podcast. We explore what's holding companies back in their growth because they're guessing what works and what doesn't work in relation to their creative efforts. Anastasia shares how she solved this problem internally first and how investors then made her aware of the size of this problem globally. She explains how this triggered a major pivot and the effort and determination it took to get to product market fit. Finally, she shares some of the secrets she learned in turning her company into a remarkable growth story. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, by having an honest perspective about how your company is really running is key. Staying in that bubble and thinking that you got everything together will just make the mess bigger. Secondly, why we are often the biggest obstacle in our own way. Thirdly, make the big bets. Think, what is the worst thing that can happen and then push forward? Your reflection will tell you 
why didn't I do this sooner? And lastly, why success often starts by cutting things down to the core. Well, hi, Anastasia. Thank Hello. You for making, thank you for making the time today and being a guest on my podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's yeah, the inspiration that you gave me when I saw a message, I think, on LinkedIn, and then I checked your website, CreativeX, and then I saw the tagline that's, that started it, which is uh, achieve creative excellence at scale. And that already kind of made a story going on in my mind about, okay, there's these people and the people struggle to to get their value out in a different way. And this is technology that helps those people become doing things they've never been able to do before. That is the fantastic. Those are the stories that I'm always looking for in my podcast. So let's dive into that in a a couple of minutes. (laughs) Just to kind of start off describing yourself, if you would have to characterize yourself with two or three words as a person or entrepreneur, what would they be? Two or three words as a person or entrepreneur. I would say I am a human, flawed, and tenacious. Oh, these are words that I haven't heard before that often. But it's good. It's cool. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. But and, we'll go no, no, that's, there's, there's no good and bad here at the end, you know? So, like, tell me a little bit more about the flawed part. Well, you know, I I think as a founder, founders get a a lot of credit, some of it rightly so and some of it not so much, because there's a whole team of people who are there, often behind the scenes, building and making this thing, but the founder typically gets held in the spotlight. And I think as as a technology culture and as a media culture, there's a lot about sort of the reverence of the founder, which which I I think is very, very flawed for a couple of reasons. One, it it puts a a lot of, it creates kind of an unnecessary burden for that individual. It also makes them seem like this infallible, perfect creature. And And lastly, and more importantly, minimizes all the people who are also there, you know, building the company up, but yet it's the founder who gets all the credit. And the reason why I, I like to be very honest about my own failings, you know, as a person, as a founder, as a CEO, as a teammate, et cetera. And I like to talk about them a lot, you know, with the team. And so I think, you know, the flawed part is that I've made a lot of mistakes in setting up and growing this company. I will continue to make those mistakes. And it's very important for me to be honest about that for other founders who are stuck in this, perhaps kind of a bubble of wanting to appear perfect and wanting to appear like you've got everything together. Whereas the reality is always so much messier than that. So yeah, I think it's just real. Well, I mean, I'm glad you say that because at the end, nobody's, nobody's perfect and we can always learn. And from the learnings, yeah, we get better and do the things that our customers love from, from what we create. I recognize a lot in your story from the people that are part of my tribe, for example. It's mm. starting with that realization that you're not perfect and then finding new ways to get around that and to avoid the bias that you possibly have or, or the mistakes you can make. And I think that, you know, the really scary thing about this too that I'm thinking about a lot right now is that even when you figure out, okay, you know, I kind of figured out how to be a good CEO for the company as the company grows and changes, the definition of what it means to be good changes too. And you have to figure out all over again. And of course, it just happens just as you start to get comfortable with your job, that comfort gets ripped, ripped away from you and you have, to, you have to start over from square one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In a startup scene, it, that goes even faster than when you were a company that's, that's mature. But at the end, yeah, there's different realities in every stage that you're in. It never stops. No, no, it yeah. does not. Well, I mean, interesting. 
talking about like making the bridge to you starting your company, Creative X, what was the big problem that you saw in the marketplace, or what was the big idea behind this? Well, no, I wish I wish there was some great industry wide moment of serendipity, but the reality is that that's just not how it happened. So when Creative X or the idea that eventually became Creative X was born. The way it was born was I had an e-commerce company at the time, a business called Hatch, which was very similar to an Etsy or not on the high street, basically an e-commerce platform that tried to bring together makers and, and users to make customized goods. And what we were seeing was that acquiring users to our platform and you know convincing them to buy from us was a big part of getting the business jump-started. Imagery and video was a big part of that journey, right? That, that sort of marketing funnel, as it were. But we couldn't, with any real meaningful degree of accuracy and certainty, understand what it was about some creatives that performed well and others that didn't. And at that time, we were a team of predominantly engineers. And so the fact that we tried to make very objective and, and analytical decisions about everything, but we couldn't do it about our content, drove us crazy. And so we started thinking about how can we start to better quantify the creative decisions that we're making so we can then figure out what's working, what's not, what should we do more of, what should we do less of, what should we experiment with that we haven't been doing, basically sort of have a common language around the conversation, around the creative conversation. And so we started tinkering with this really as just a way to solve our own problem. You know, when we figured out, hey, imagery and video is so important to us, but we can't really objectively analyze it. We went out and started looking for tools that could do it for us because our business was completely different. We were running an e-commerce business, yeah. but we couldn't find anything. And uh -huh. our CTO, who's still our CTO today, said to me, look, why don't we just build this to just try and jumpstart our, our own business? And we did. But again, coming back to your question, you know, it wasn't this big thing that we saw. We were very narrowly focused on solving our own problem, which is, I think, where the tenacity comes from. You know, that e-commerce business was failing and we refused to give up. So we were like, we will make this thing work. And in some ways we did, in other ways we didn't, obviously, because the, the company ended up going a different direction. But when it became clear to us that there was something much bigger is when we went to fundraise in the summer of 2015 for that e-commerce business, because we started really growing. You know, we yep. started growing, our numbers were looking good. And a number of investors who looked at the business in more detail said, well, where is this growth curve coming from? You know, what are you doing? And we'd explain the stuff that we were tinkering with behind the scenes to create that growth curve. And a number of them said, you're in the wrong business, <laughs> you know? Every company we have is struggling with how do you become a bit more informed around the creative and at that time, really the visual decisions that you're making. Because the broader industry context that summer was that Instagram, Pinterest, and Snapchat all launched their monetization tools. They were 100% visual. Display had finally overtaken search as where the bulk of media spend was going. And so we were living in this visual world and we had no tools to really help us understand it. And I wish it was my brilliance that helped us see it, but it wasn't, you know, it was, it was, we just stumbled upon it first because we were so dogged about trying to make our first company work and somehow ended up stumbling onto a much bigger problem. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, one of the things in the work, work streams I always do it at some point, there's a prompt after you go through all the problems and understanding what your customers what their struggles are all about. At some point, there's the, the question and the prompt, 
what is the business you really in? Yes. And so often we are so wrong about that part. Yes. That is holding us back. Yeah, it is fascinating to, well, luckily at the end, you, someone removed the blind spots because you're so close to it. So close. Yes. You know, it's a really good, good point though around what is the business you're really in, but also what is the feedback that you listen to and the feedback that you don't? Because the reality is, you know, as a founder, any business person, you get so much feedback. Right. And there is, I think, more of an art to thinking about what you keep and what you throw away. And had we sort of not taken that feedback on board and, and not really heard that there was something much bigger to what we were building, you know, the outcome could have been completely different. Yeah. You might have been a pretty well-established e-commerce company in a, in a big <laughs> blue ocean. Oh, sorry, a big, yes. big red ocean, red ocean, by the way, because it's, it's a heavily populated space. Heavy puppies. And, you know, I, I don't think that company had a lot of legs to go. I mean, I think it was a good sort of small business, but I, I don't think it, it could have really been the big tech business that we were hoping to build, certainly not in the way that we were building it at the time. Great. Yeah. So what is the opportunity if we get this right? You know, you started the company, you, you started to build out the essence or that nugget that came from the e-commerce business. If the world starts to adopt that technology, well, like what is the difference then? Well, Where I is think the, the value coming from? Yes. Well, I, I think, you know, there's so many differences, right? I think the first difference is, again, taking something that has been a very subjective up until now and helping give everyone a common language and a common framework for understanding is this piece of creative visual content that I may have a feeling about, but how do I better quantify whether or not it's, you know, in line with best practices, it's consistent with my brand, et cetera, et cetera. I think the ability to analyze content more objectively also allows us to, and allows brands to start to be more reflective about things like, for example, diversity and inclusion in their content. You know, we make a lot of promises and have a lot of efforts to try and do things like be responsible citizens as brands to yeah. promote, you know, different people of all different colors and orientations and Yet, when we look at the content we put out, we don't always tell that story. And I think part of it is because it has become very, very difficult to analyze content at that scale in an objective way. And so, you know, I think the other big thing is that we can help to even get an initial pulse check as to how you're doing on things that don't even relate to marketing performance, right? What is the message you're really sending, I think, is the broader question. And how do we help you figure out whether or not the messages that you're really sending actually are in line with the brand values and the things that you would like to be sending? Yeah, that's a great one. But what's the message you're really sending? And I agree with you that that requires a lot of reflection. Right? It, it stimulates reflection. And that's the good part, because then you start to be able, if you, if you know and you can see the evidence of that, then you start to adjust that. And that's where improvement, improvement happens. That's right. Um, yes. So, I mean, the company started in 2015. So we're mm -hmm. now 2021. What has been the journey? What has been, what I'm always interested in is to understand what have you done? Yeah, well, well maybe there wasn't anything you done differently because there wasn't anything like it. But what has been fundamental in terms of how you created the product that helps create its success? Yes. Certainly, we did a lot of things differently relative to the first company because we learned a lot of what not to do. And uh -huh. the first time around, I think as a first time founder, you get sucked into doing a lot of things that don't really matter. You know, one example is sort of like vanity press. You know, I remember we started a company and sort of for months, all we cared about was, you know, making sure we got on the cover of some magazine or other. 
just because it, it gave us validation, but didn't actually move the business forward. And we've learned to care a lot less about those things and just focus on what we're building. I think some of the other, you know, when it came to investors, for example, that was another thing we we thought a good investor was an investor that had the best brand name or the most recognizable brand name. And that is night and day different to how we select investors today, which is really based on an alignment with our long-term vision, a healthy understanding of the balance between short-term growth and long-term vision. We pick individuals now and not firms. It's never about sort of the brand name of the firm and all about, does this individual really care and understand our business? So, you know, we've done a lot of things like that. I think the other thing that we really tried to get right is this journey to product market fit. I think there is a temptation to rely a lot on vanity metrics, such as like, oh, website impressions or things like that. And none of those things ultimately matter. So it took us about 12 iterations of our product to launch the product at CreativeX, which was our creative quality product that got to product market fit and we where we could comfortably say yes this is you know this is working it is delivering value it is delivering value in a repeatable and sustainable way across you know many different types of brands across a variety of categories but we really took 12 iterations of that product and i think what we did really well there is influenced so heavily by our hatch experience is not let our ego get in the way and try and be very clear about you know Yes, we might want to build this, but if no one wants to use that, or if this does not any value, then we need to leave our ego at the door and really listen what does add value. The first 11 products that we built, they were cool and people trialed them, but they weren't willing to really double down. And, you know, again, that's where I think the tenacity comes in. We knew there was something there. We, it just took us about two, two and a half to three years to figure out a model where what we wanted to build and what our customers needed us to do were one and the same. And what was the last, where came the aha moments and what did you change then in your approach? Was it like, was it missing yeah. anything or was it kind of stripping a lot of things? You know what it was? It was, <laughs> it's a really interesting question because it's something that we've, we talk about a lot internally. And I think the easiest way to sum it up is that you know, the best ideas are always incredibly simple, right? And so our first 12 versions of the product focused on what I would call sort of sexy data, right? So we were like, hey, we'll analyze your content for anything, hundreds of thousands of visual attributes. Like, you know, we'll tell you if they're dogs or cats or lemons or red or whatever. And we like, through all this data at marketers and you know it's cool right you're like oh my god you analyze a million things isn't that amazing but then they would see this data and be like i have no idea what to do with this right and we were like but well, look we're giving you all this data and they're like this is too much work you know like, i don't know what to do with this like if i'm a car company why do i care about dogs or red or i remember we had one company where like hey when people wear dresses your ads do well and they're like well, we're a car company, like we're not a fashion retailer, we don't fundamentally care. And so we got ourselves into this dynamic where everyone was like, so sexy, so sexy, but they just wouldn't, they wouldn't double down, right? They wouldn't subscribe to our product. And we were starting to become more like an agency than a technology product. And so we, you know, and this is where luckily we'd established a very honest and direct relationship with some of our early customers where they could be like, hey, 
this isn't working for me and this is why. And I remember we had one gentleman who was very direct to us and he said, look, you're not solving the fundamental problem I need you to solve. And I said, okay, what's your fundamental problem? He said, my fundamental problem is we as an organization are producing, you know, five times the amount of content this year than we did last year. And I have no technology that actually helps make sure that as we scale content production, all of it continues to meet our best practices, be consistent with our brand, incorporate the latest learnings and scale all of that to our agency partners, our technology partners, our media platform partners, et cetera. And we were like, oh, that's really easy for us to do. And he was like, yeah, well, you should, you should do that. And we were like, huh. So we went and, you know, we went and talked to a number of other customers. We're like, hey, if we do that, like, are you just never like, oh, yes, yes, then, then we're ready to sign a contract. I mean, you know, obviously I, I'm simplifying things a lot, but to your question, you know, us getting to product market fit was like removing 90% of data from our interface. Let me make a small interruption here. Anastasia just shared an eye-opening anecdote about how difficult it is to be customer-centric and focus on the true problem rather than the shiny, sexy things that seem cool but have no value. By leaving their ego at the doorstep and simply listening with intent, they managed to turn the ship, throw away what wasn't needed, and ended up with a product market fit by removing 90% of the data from their interface. And this is a trait remarkable software companies master. They focus on the essence, and with that, create something valuable and desirable. And that's where momentum starts. And you can master these traits as well. And I've got various options for you to start. First, just go to valueinspiration.com to learn about the masterminds and the work streams to put the fundamental building blocks in place to fast track the growth of your software company. And as you're there anyway, don't forget to grab the free Kindle version of my book, The Remarkable Effect, to start sparking new inspirations in the next 30 minutes. Back to the interview. That's exactly why I asked it. Because <laughs> a lot of times it's not about more, it's about less. It's 100% about less. <laughs> yes. It's, but, but it's very, you know, it's a, it's very, very painful to take things out. I remember, you know, when I was at Google, I started Google on the, on the marketing side. And while I was there, some of my work involved producing videos for new products we were launching. And I worked with a brilliant team of video editors at Google. And we would make, you know, we would shoot the video and we would sort of cut it down and we'd cut it down to like a two, three minute video. And I would get into the studio with the, with the video producers and they would say, now we have to make it one minute. And I would say, what do you mean we have to make it one minute? Like everything we've put in, you know, it went from it being 20 minutes to being three. We cannot possibly cut it down. And a woman named Julie and a gentleman named Rob would say, no, you have to cut it down. And that process of cutting it was really, really difficult, but is amazing. You always ended up with something so clear, so concise that actually kept people's attention. But it, it is so painful. It is. Yeah. It's going down to the essence. And we believe everything needs to be there and it's, we're proud of it. And it's, yeah. Do you know how many hours it took to develop this functionality? <laughs> so, what has been the hardest not to crack in that whole process? The hardest not to crack. I think that the biggest challenge for us has been convincing very large brands that this is something that they need to fundamentally embed into the bedrock of their marketing infrastructure. And the reason why I say this is because when we first started, there was no other company doing this. And so we as a startup were basically paying the educational toll 
of having to explain to everyone, hey, like, this is what technology can do today. And these are some of the insights that you can get, you know, from your content. Da, 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 da. And that's a pretty terrible place to be in as a startup because you don't have the resources to educate the market, but you have to do it. And so for us, you know, I remember early on, you know, we would have so many meetings where people were just like, oh, this is really cool. Here's some like ex-Google people doing some cool stuff in, in visual technology. And we get paraded around the organization, but no one was really sort of ready to buy. We almost got bundled into like, oh, this is innovation. So we want to hear about it, but not necessarily we need to adopt this now. And we spent, I would say, about sort of two years really embedding ourselves with the organizations who were ready to be early adopters until, you know, now, now that's no longer a problem. But in the early days, it took us about two years of really working on that use case that made the need for this critical and urgent. Yeah, we always think that we start with cool because, again, it's, we're proud of it. And we just like, this is the, we are the first to have this. But if you don't connect it to a problem, it will never get there. I mean, in my, in my book, I've got a triangle. And if you, it's simply three very basic questions. Is it valuable in the eyes of the customer? Is it critical on their agenda? And can you exceed expectations? And if one of them is no, start over. Yes. And we often find one of them is yes, and the other ones are no's. And like, like you say, if it's not critical on their agenda, then it becomes a nice to have. And there's yes. so many things you compete with. Yeah. They can only spend their budget once. Yeah. Uh, it goes back to your to the discussion you had with earlier customers uh, coming back to you, luckily enough, and saying, you're not solving my essential problem. Yeah. But, you know, and I think the, the tricky thing is that we wouldn't have known, and I would argue the customer wouldn't have known that until they tried it. Because, you know, this is, again, where we live, marketing has become very data-informed. And sometimes just having more data of any kind of data is seen as a competitive advantage. And so I think had we not sort of gone through the cycle of them getting the data and being like, yeah, this is cool, but it's probably not as actionable as I need it to be. It wouldn't have led to that feedback from them, which wouldn't have led us to rethink about, you know, what data is signal and what data is noise. <laughs> Good point. Because that's what it's all about, yeah. Yeah, talking about, I mean, I wrote my book, I referenced it now twice, I think. I wrote a book called The Remarkable Effect. And in that book, I talk about the 10 traits that define a remarkable software business. You've come from Google, you've started your own e-commerce company, Hatch, and now it's CreativeX. So you got a little bit of experience there, a lot of experience. What do you believe are the secrets that you need to have or the traits that you need to have in order to create something that people keep talking about? As an individual or as, as a, a company? Leader? As a company. But like, what are the things that, you have, that the company has to tick in order to become that company that people talk about and keep talking about for the longer term? So I think there are a couple of things. I think the first one is sort of going back to your, your point around value, right? Do you really understand who the user is? And do you have a mantra of really, truly listening to the user? And that doesn't mean doing what they tell you to do, but it does mean being able to truly understand the why behind what they're, what they're saying and the what they're trying to do, the sort of jobs to be done framework. I think another thing that's really important for a company to thrive is, and we actually have a value around this because I think it is critical, is a culture of individuals who are not afraid to disagree. And that disagreement extends, you know, from the top all the way to the bottom, as it were, right? So one of our values is called encouraging constructive dissent. 
which is really around making sure that anyone at the company not only feels safe, but is encouraged to disagree with the things that they think we could be doing better, highlight things that you know, aren't being done, et cetera. So you have diversity of thought. I think another reason why, and this is one we still struggle with, if I'm you know, being perfectly honest, but something that I'm seeing is more and more important is picking your battles. I think a lot of, if you do your hiring right, I think early stage companies tend to attract doers, right? People who will get in there and just, they're like, they're executors, right? They want to do everything. They like, like getting their hands dirty, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm coming to realize is, and this is kind of advice I've been giving from almost everyone on the team is, I would like you to do 10% less. And I would like you to invest that extra 10% in making sure that the things you're doing are the most important and impactful things for the business. So this, you know, sort of question of like ruthless prioritization, what we say no to is ultimately just as important as what we say yes to. And I, I think flexing that muscle is really important for a company's success because then you don't end up using your time on things that ultimately, you know, sure you, but yes, I got this done, but like, why does it matter? Good one. Really good one. I think something we spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of time thinking about is, you know, and again, coming back to those three words you asked me about in the beginning of our conversation is my personal belief, right? Is that a lot of company success boils down to the people and how you empower and treat everyone on the team is, I think if you get that right, I think it is more difficult to fail because you have people who not only are sort of committed and embedded, feel psychologically safe to challenge and push, but they feel a sense of ownership in the business as well. And that creates a very different dynamic. So a lot of what what I personally spend my time thinking about is, are we creating that place for our entire team? And how can we do better at creating that place? Strong. Yeah, I like that aspect of culture. People aligned around the same desire to what you want to become and the change you want to create in the world and really empower people. And that, that it goes back to also to, well, to your earlier points as well. Culture where individuals are not afraid to disagree. I like that point about courage, constructive dissent. Because that's what it's about. I mean, in, the, in, the, in my book, I talk about they master the art of curiosity. And I think it a little bit starts with there as well. It's asking, yes. dare to ask the questions, dare to ask the yes. difficult question and bring that up. Yes. One of our values to your point about curiosity is thinking curiously, but operating analytically. And the balance we're trying to strike there, right, is my personal view is I will say yes to anything once. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone and it's not illegal, you know, I almost don't care what the idea is. I think we should create a culture where experimentation and failure is allowed. Hence the sort of, you know, thinking curiously. But what I expect at the end of every experiment is a view as to what did we learn? How did it do? What data did we collect? And based on that data, is this something we should do again? Or how do we make it even better the second time around? And I think, and the reason why we put this in as a value is I think in the beginning, you know, when you start a company, it's all kind of blue sky, right? And you could do anything. And so I think you see a lot of the thinking curiosity piece, but not as much of the operating analytically. I think as the companies evolve, they tend to skew towards the other and forget 
that experimentation. So we've tried to kind of bring both together because I think it is a constant balance between these two things that has to be maintained at all sizes and stages of the company. Exactly. Yeah. And I've seen how it starts the right way. And then when people get comfortable and you got your success and you think you're there, then it drops and then yeah. you get complacent. A hundred percent. It's a big disease. <laughs> so, yes, it is. Yeah, it is. And it's, to, uh, it's really hard to stay off. Exactly. Yeah. And it's also hard to recognize because you start to believe your own story. Yeah. And how do you, how do you keep yourself honest in that world? Yes. Very big one to, to stay aware of. Very good. So in talking about like you, you launched the product at some point, what mm. has been the biggest lessons learned in the, in the whole sales process? I think you already talked about it earlier on when you, but it was about convincing the larger companies, the, yeah, the larger brands. What has been a key takeaway or learning in, in creating momentum around your product? Yes. So I think there are, some of these things are, are painfully obvious, right? So I don't know if I'm, I will say anything that you haven't already heard, but you know, no one wants to be the first or very few people want to be the first, but no one wants to be the last. And so what we had to do, and this was very painful for us is we had a hard time getting someone to kind of be the first. And at the end of the day, we were like, if we have to make concessions for someone to be the first, like let's just make those concessions so we can have a first who is there. And then once you have a first, then a lot of it is about, you know, quite basic tactical things like case studies and examples that you can then leverage and tell a story around that make it clear that this is the kind of thing that you don't want to be left behind on. And I think the dynamic is is really difficult, right? Because, you know, again, like people are naturally sort of risk averse. Most people are, especially at big companies. And so you really have to find, I think we've, we've been very lucky here, individuals who are, and I think there is a sort of a, kind of a name for them, which, which is failing me at the moment, but who are like internal entrepreneurs, right? They're within this big company, but they are hungry to try new things and find ways to improve. They, they don't just want to do the same thing the same way for the next 10 years. And the difficulty there is about finding, because those individuals, you know, it's not a job title that they have, no. right? No, change makers, it's, yeah. Yes, exactly. And and so how do you find and isolate them? And sometimes they tie to seniority, but many times they don't. Many times they are just, they are, you know, you'd be surprised, right? Yeah. They may be a couple years in, but they have something about them that enables them to drive change in organization. And that's really, that's really incredible. You know, that was one thing. I think the other thing, and this is something that I I think many people will, will sort of debate us on is we made a lot of mistakes in the development of our sales team in the early days, in that we let ourselves be convinced that sales is, is more of an art than a science, and that the sort of traditional sales model was the right sales model for us. And what we realized is that that's really, yeah, there is a lot of art to sales, but also understanding the sales process scientifically and analytically is really important. And it took us time to find people who were comfortable going out there and selling, but also understood that their work, like other teams' work, could be measured 
in an objective sort of analytical framework, right? Yeah, true. And that was a very painful part of the process for us. I think the other thing that we've learned is, you know, in the early days, we got introduced to lots of, sort of salespeople who believed that the way to sell was through, you know, taking people out and doing things like that. And, and I'm not, I think those tactics could work, but the reality is for some reason, our company was sort of allergic to it where we as a company probably skew a little bit more serious. We tend to be a little bit more data-driven. And what we fundamentally realized is, you know, when we take people who really, who almost are very technical and make them product experts, they're not really selling. They're just talking about what it is our product does. And that's been much more successful for us. Like, you know, one of our most successful salespeople studied neuroscience, right? Another one studied like molecular biology. And so these are sort of deeply scientific technical people who've chosen to believe in our product and what it can do. But I would say they skew more to the science part of how they think about the world and have been able to position themselves as almost like consultants to the people we're talking to rather than like, hey, I don't care if I'm selling sort of ice to an Eskimo thing. That's not really our our model. It's about creating trust. Yeah. That's extremely important in the B2B commercial side. And that trust comes from being concrete. It comes from the credibility that you kind of bring across, that you know your stuff, and that is real, you know. Yes. And that what you that you what you promise is what you can deliver. Yes. And I think if you can bring people up from from the product side, they know what is there, and they won't oversell. Yeah. So that combination is critical. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, I, I think when I think about anyone who is being sold to. I mean, their sort of BS radar is so finely tuned that you have to be real, right? It is not easy finding people who can balance those different aspects of being sort of a commercial leader. Yeah. I like to see your BS radar. It's what I see all the time. You know, for some reason, when we in the B2B software sales, it always seems to be that we need to take a disconnect and we talk language that the other side doesn't understand. And I understand, yes. I, don't, I don't get why. No, it's about having a helpful conversation, being on the same side of the table, doing that together rather than on the yes. other side pitching. And yeah, yeah, I completely see. And the funny, yeah, that you, that you bring it up and how that lesson, how do you learn that lesson over time by being analytical about it, you know, what works and what doesn't work and, and then tune towards that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Really good. Thanks for sharing that. Let me see, going, I mean, talking about that whole journey, what have you been most proud of achieving so far? I mean, are there, for example, customer anecdotes that you keep talking about? You know, the things I'm proudest of probably relate to the team more than anything else. I hit it so often, yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'm very proud when people come in and say, hey, I've broken my record here for the company I've worked at the longest. I am very proud when, you know, so I'm going to say, I constantly get sort of headhunter recruited, but like, don't worry, I, I really want to stay here. I'm very proud when, you know, I recently, the team's grown a lot in the last year and a half. We went from 10 people to about 50 people in 18 months, which has been a very, in some ways, a great change. In other ways, a very painful change. I now, you know, talk to people every six months who I don't sort of see on a daily basis. And I hear about the experience that their managers are creating for them on the team. And I feel very proud of that. But, 
you know, someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, if I could have any headline in the newspaper about our business, you know, like five years from now, what headline would I, would I choose? And it was a really difficult question to answer, but eventually, you know, what, what I settled on was, you know, creative X sort of best place to work at, right? Because that's really what I think would make me proudest of all is that we've created this atmosphere for people to thrive and excel. And if we do a good job bringing smart people into the business, then I think everything else follows suit. Yeah, it becomes a, it becomes a magnet for both employees and for customers. Yeah, That's right. That's right. Because it shines two directions. Fantastic. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question to ask. Like what, if, you, if you had ever a billboard or a headline in the papers, what would it be? What is the message yeah. you try to get out there? And, you know, of course, like the, the, you know, of course you think about, oh, Creative X, now like a unicorn, billion-dollar company, all that stuff. And it's so true, don't get me wrong, those things would make me proud. But I think if I had to choose one, that would not be the headline. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to your point about like what you did different and it was focusing on what matters. Yeah. I go back to my notes. And that, that these things matter. And because you focus on the things that matter, everything else falls in place. Yes. But it's yeah. very difficult to do, you know? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's very difficult to do. Wow, yeah. but I mean, growing from 10 to 50 people in a period that has been led by COVID, applause for that. Um, <laughs> was it maybe also because that period or the pandemic introduced sort of the, the catalyst for products like that you have? I certainly think what we saw was that during the pandemic, all of our customers doubled down rather than pulling back. And so as it became more critical to justify the value and impact of every dollar, euro, pound that you were spending, it became impossible to avoid that 90% of people's budgets were going behind something that had an image or a video or a GIF fundamentally driving that conversation. And there was no analytics framework to help on that journey. Yeah. The perfect value proposition there. Yeah. Your, your budget is shrunk to 10%. And now you, now you make the, make a, uh, have to make a 100% improvement yeah. <laughs> or a 10x improvement on that spend in order to, Absolutely. Come to, to, to close the gap. Yes. Yeah, I can see where that is coming from. Fascinating how... Yeah, something that you haven't got under control can really spark and make people see the value that they didn't yeah. even see before. Yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, you're lucky and the things fall, fall in part. It's like building a big wave behind you and then riding it. Yeah. Getting towards the end of this inspiring interview so far, if you were to think about like the wisdom that you gained and the, you know, the things that you've learned, what would be a recommendation that you would give to other people that aspire to be entrepreneurs or actually want to step up in their role and do the things that you're doing? What, is, what would be a do or and or a don't? You know, I think the thing that was most powerful for me was the realization that the things that prevented me from doing the things that I want to do were just me. I had someone back in the day who called me an underconfident overachiever and what, and, and that feedback was really transformational for me. And yeah. that's something I, I remember and sort of think and talk about a lot because, you know, what, what he was meaning is he said to me, and I said, what do you mean? I'm underconfident. Like I'm plenty confident. He was like, no, no, no. You know, you have confidence up to a certain level, but you're missing that fundamental last bit of belief to think that you can, you can, in this case for me, he said to, to you can do this for yourself. This when I was working at Google, 
said, you, you know, you don't have that last belief to think you can, you can do this for yourself. For many people, I see it as they don't have that last belief to think, you know, I can go do this other big job because I haven't done it before. And so, you know, this is, again, it's, it's nothing revolutionary here, but I do think a lot of times, and, and I hate to say this, I see this a lot more frequently with women where there sometimes is the belief that unless I haven't done it before or haven't kind of ramped up to it, I can't, I can't do this again. And I, I try very actively to shape that belief. And, you know, I'm a big believer in the Montessori sort of education philosophy, right? Yeah. Which without going too deep into it, one of the central tenets of Montessori is kids and people learn at a different age in different stages in different kind of ways. And so what they constantly do is they will put a child into a new environment where they haven't done something and see how they do. And if they do great, great, they'll, they'll kind of take it to the next. And if they don't, they'll ram, but they're constantly throwing them into new situations to see how they do rather than taking everyone along the same structured curriculum. So anyway, so long story short here, you know, it's kind of like going back to the Nike slogan is if you want to do something, just do it. I often think it's, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know? Yeah, true. And it comes down to every time I have been afraid of something and then I've pushed and pushed myself and then I've finally done it. The thing that I always reflected on was why didn't I do this sooner? I mean, always. I cannot think of a single instance, even if I completely messed it up, I cannot think of a single instance where I did something and then found myself wishing that I either hadn't done it or waited longer, you know? I completely agree with you. I feel, I feel exactly the same. And sometimes some things hold you back that yeah, are not even worth it. It's, and the feeling of accomplishment when you've then done it is like, yeah, that's what you do it for. Yeah. Even if it's a failure, exactly. And you've yeah. learned something. Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, my family, my family was always very good at, putting me into unknown sort of situation to see how I responded. And I think as I grew up, I found myself, if there wasn't something new that I was trying, that I, I would sort of inevitably get bored. And, but I think the good thing about that is I got very used to failing at stuff, uh-huh. right? Cause I would go to something completely like every, every, you know, however I would try something new and some things I was good at and some things I wasn't, but it didn't, when I wasn't good at something, it didn't sort of bother me. Right. It didn't decrease my self-worth as an individual. I was like, oh, okay, I'm not good at it. Fine, I'll find something else I am good at, and that's okay. But yes, I, I think we are often the biggest obstacles in our own way. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to finish it off and for people to reflect upon what's holding them back. So, well, thank you very much for this inspiring interview. I mean, I learned a great deal. I wrote a lot of notes. Thanks for the vulnerability, for sharing your stories, for helping for sharing like what you had done different in order to create something that's remarkable and for those insights. So where can people go to find out more about CreativeX or to say hi to you? For CreativeX, it's just creativex.com. We also publish research on a semi-regular basis. So if you want to sign up for any of the research that we're doing from all the data that we have, you can do that on our website. For me, LinkedIn is a great place to find me. I'm also fanatical about replying to every email that I get. So Anastasia at creativex.com is the best way to reach me. Thank you very much. And good luck with the next part of the journey. (laughs) Thank you. We need all the luck we can get. Well, I mean, don't be all. (laughs) So hopefully this helps. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. And this ends my conversation with Anastasia. And I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, 
please share this with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Anastasia Lang, founder and CEO of CreativeX. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.